Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from director Louise Hooper about her latest work on Netflix epic fantasy adventure The Sandman based on Neil Gaiman's graphic novels. The Media Pro Studios' Marta Espeleta on the Spanish company's expansion in the US and Bits Media's Nick Amir Din on new streaming service Qualbox, which is busy buying programming for Muslim audiences. Director Louise Hooper started out in helming arts documentaries for the BBC, working with subjects including Helmut Newton, David Attenborough and Bjork, before moving into TV drama on series such as Vera, Colfi and Lucky Man. She's since steered shows such as Cheat and Flesh and Blood, alongside episodes of Inside Number 9 and The Witcher, with her latest project being another Netflix fantasy adventure, The Sandman, based on Neil Gaiman's graphic novels of the same name. Hooper shot the season finale and one part of the special extra episode that surprised fans when the series landed last month, quickly becoming the streamer's most popular programme in over 90 countries. She spoke to Michael Pickard about her involvement and delight at being given the chance to bring Gaiman's vision to screen, as well as plans to develop her own ideas. Hi, I'm Louise Hooper, director. Recently just worked on Sandman, episode 10, the finale, and the bonus episode, Calliope. Right, and and, and I suppose it's Calliope that's, that's um, caused a little bit of a storm, hasn't it? Because the, the show's uh, was launched at the start of August, but of course it's only now that we know there's a, a, a secret bonus episode. Um, how long have you known there's been a secret bonus episode? Well, I mean, I, I knew obviously when I was making it that it was going to go out separately, but when you're working, you're just working and just, you know, you're creating two, beautiful episodes and enjoying that whole process and then obviously when it came um to the launch of salmon it was like remember not to say anything so yeah and and what were the mechanics then or the logistics i should say of, of filming that secret episode were you doing 10 and 11 as a, as a block or was it a kind of a separate project yeah it was actually done as a block yeah exactly that so I, you know i did the prep and we did the filming for 10 and then we did a bit more prep and did the filming for calliope so but yeah i did it in one period of time you know, at shepherd studios which is a fantastic place to film and uh, a Wonderful, wonderful, you know, cast and crew. Fantastic that Gary Steele, the designer, made this incredible house for Calliope in this Georgian house on a studio uh, stage at uh, Shepparton. And then we filmed a little bit outside in central London when Calliope walked down into the street. But yeah, it was a lovely episode to direct. Very small and condensed. Not many locations, just the house of Rasmus Fry and um, and a small cast as well, but um, all beautifully considered. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, it's probably a silly question, but why did you want to work on Sandman what was it that uh, that drew you to this acclaimed graphic novel uh, adapted by Neil Gaiman and and his team and and uh, certainly on my sort of you know what to watch list for for a long time I've been you know eagerly awaiting it like many people as it's you know number one in countless countries around the world on Netflix at the moment so what was it about the story or the scripts perhaps that drew you to the project it is that basically I mean it's this incredible legacy that um, I love the comics and known about the comics for a long time you know I know for such a long time Neil's been um, thinking about ways to get this made and of course Alan Heinberg the showrunner who's a fantastic fantastic collaborator and a brilliant writer so all of those things come together and of course I just worked on The Witcher just before that which is another big Netflix show so there's something really exciting about being in that world and that kind of machine where you've got the most beautiful ideas on costume you know fantastic heads of department it's just this absolute labour of love with these 
these really, really talented people telling stories which are brilliant. I mean, the whole thing of the Sandman is it's so layered and multifaceted and you've got, you know, uh, you know, the endless, you've got these different philosophical ideas and you've got um, real people, you've got absolutely fantastic dialogue. Um, then obviously the imagery from the comic books, it was so exciting for me to take that as a, a launch pad from how I'm going to direct it. Sometimes doing homages to the frames exactly and being quite nerdy about it and getting it absolutely accurate. And other times taking the essence of that and then and then choreographing something different. But um, yeah, it was irresistible. I mean, how can you not want to do Sandman? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you know, Neil himself has said you know he's had countless opportunities to do an adaptation of Sandman as a film I guess primarily over the last sort of 20 or 30 years and and he's turned them all down because it wasn't right and and what sense do you get working within the team that like you say it was very faithful you know homaging frames of the story in the comic books in some points and then obviously changing things in in other places what kind of sense did you get within the team of how they wanted to make this an adaptation that would be worthy of the fans but also adapt it for the medium that we would be watching it on it's a question I think it's um I mean again I have to keep going back to Alan you know he he's as a showrunner he sits between you know he was talking to Neil every single day he's talking to us as the as the directors in the production everybody everywhere you look you've got you know pictures of the of the comic book on people's offices and walls and you know photo references and you know you go into the costume department which is amazing and they've got all the images up there so I think everybody has that as their base as a real inspiration and also a respect so I mean everything came from that you know everything everything you know was was in in the comic books and then from that it's like okay well let's do this but with a slightly modern twist or how can we like for example with me how can we do Calliope but make sure that it feels you know fresh and, and correct for you know 2022 so it's just um I think everyone loving it and knowing it and being immersed in it and then from that everyone's you know it's a talented bunch of people you know bringing their own ideas to to the table and I guess you know you, you if people who know your work they know that you've helmed entire miniseries uh, you know on your own and so what's it like I guess going in the reverse of that and then coming in at the end of a an epic 10-part series to do 10 and the special episode 11 what kind of role do you play in that uh, pre-production stage and then while the other blocks are filming ahead of you what are you kind of doing and, and then how do you follow that on in the best possible way mm, it's a really good question because you're absolutely right so yeah I did Cheat and Flesh and Blood which are both two four-part limited series which I did all four and you're basically of course absolutely everything so you're you know effectively a showrunner in terms of you know cast and, and locations and, and the whole thing which I absolutely loved and look forward to doing more as well of course but this is absolutely genuinely as exciting and as stimulating because it's a different prospect you're going into this big machine um, like the witch and you know sandman <clears throat> that's already happening and what's exciting is you're given this sort of you know set of parts an incredible set of parts because it's a huge budget fantastic sets like gary Steele, you know fantastic costume fantastic cast and your script obviously is different to everyone else's so you're doing what is my best version that i can do for sandman for episode 10 for calliope so in terms of the director it's exactly the same excitement and passion you know it's like how can i read the script and make sure that i express it in the way that's the most faithful to, to the essence of what the story is but also is the most visually exciting and authentic for the, for the audience so it's the same it's the same um, ingredients really whether you do a limited series or you come on to a big show you're just basically saying how can I interpret this as the best of my ability and that's a real thrill you know it's exciting I love it and of course you know you what's interesting about Sandman is each episode 
episode, of course, there's a through line. And there's lots of different stories, lots of different characters. So you are quite free to then storyboard and create new images and ideas. I mean, the, we had Desire, who's fantastic, you know, played by Mason Alexander Park, and this beautiful, beautiful set that Gary Steele created. And we literally had to film it in just one day. And that was it. That set was going to disappear. And so, you know, you're not really following anyone's footsteps. You're just basically, there's that moment. And you have to work with all the HODs to create that new world, I suppose. So, yeah, yeah deeply satisfying. So was it was there kind of a visual style to Sandman, you would say, overall, that you kind of bought into and then accentuated in your own way? Or, or did you come in with a, an idea about, you know, how you wanted to, to move the camera, perhaps, in, in your episodes? It's interesting. I mean, really, think once you've got the set and you've got the costumes and you've got the actors, that's your set of parts. But actually, in terms of the look itself, there was real freedom to storyboard and to plan and to, to you know, so of course, it's choreographing the actors' movement, working with them is how you're going to move the camera. So I worked with the wonderful DOP, Sam Heesman. But no, I mean, whenever you do something that's a, a, a big series, no one's saying to you, you must shoot it like this. And that's why you're given your job because they trust you to, by osmosis, understand what the essence is. And then you can then do it. You know, it's just a kind of understanding of what that is. And you try and make the best version you can. No, definitely. And and so in episode 10, I mean, can you tell us a bit about perhaps some of the challenges or, or the, the scenes that you had to sort of, uh, you know, film? Because, you know, at the end of a 10 episode fantasy epic, it's, uh, I imagine you had quite some number of set pieces or some important scenes that kind of had to wrap a lot of story up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was one particularly fun uh, sequence, which is with Rose Walker and her brother, which is um, the Vortex. And there we were filming out um, near Chichester, actually, on this beautiful green place. And they all, in the story, get sucked into this vortex, down into this thing. And that, I mean, that was a really fun film, because basically you had to, as a director, get everyone like, OK, you're falling down into a vortex. You've got to do this. You've got to twist your body. In. And then, of course, what happens is, you know, the VFX and the CGI does this incredible work with what you've set up. But that was really fun to do. And, of course, the dream and desire, for me, was a real high point. And we did that as a real homage, actually, to Sandman, because okay. um, frames there, if you see, but when <clears throat> dream pulls back desire's face, I mean, that's exactly as it is in the in the comic book. So we were trying to make that as faithful as possible. And so then Calliope, can you tell us a bit about the story in that? Is it is it very much a kind of standalone episode or how does it kind of follow on from the preceding 10 episodes? And, and what were your thoughts on that? Because there are a couple of scenes that have been changed for various reasons. So what can you tell us about that? So Calliope is a standalone episode. Effectively, you know, it's the story of Calliope, who's the muse. She basically, unfortunately, is taken away by Erasmus Fry, who's a writer and um, basically, let's not mince our words, you know, he basically rapes her and takes that muse and inspiration and becomes a successful writer. And then the next guy, who's Richard Maddock, played brilliantly by Arthur Darvel, he then takes her into his house and he's very reticent and, and feels more respectful and doesn't want to, to do anything to her and he buys her gifts and he buys her presents and tries to woo her. But uh, the more pressure he gets from his agent and the more his ego wants to have success, he, as a, a frail man, in terms of uh, morals, he does, uh, unfortunately, also rape her. But we don't show that. It's obviously implied strongly in the story. And uh, it's very important to me that Melisante, brilliant, brilliant actress who plays Calliope, shows complete dignity, moral strength, intelligence. You know, however appalling the situation, she keeps herself strong and she's never crying or begging or pleading or, or being submissive. So for me as a director, I'm so hardwired to show women to be strong and intelligent. And I don't want to have anything where someone feels weak. You know, they can be in terrible situations, but they keep their resolve. And so I was really mindful of that in terms of, you know, her eyeline, making sure it's equal and strong, big close-ups when she and Richard Maddock are in the same shot that they both have equal prominence. So she's a goddess and she's strong, unlike the human weakness around her. So it was really crucial 
struggle for me just to always make sure the camera showed that. We don't see the rape scene. You basically see instead the computer screen and we, we zoom into that. And that's basically his ego and his ambition and how he wants to be a famous writer. So it's that sort of evilness that pushes him to do what he does. So that's very much more of a, a grounded episode, would you say, in terms of the, the locations and the sets that you use? So what was what was that just like filming that episode compared to what you'd done previously? It must have been, you know, much different perhaps. Yeah, no, it, it was. I mean, it, I've enjoyed both. I mean, the finale for episode, but for episode 10 was really eclectic and we were in slaughterhouses and we we're in, you know, inside ventricles of hearts and we we're in, you know, absolutely amazing locations. And then this one was much quieter. You know, we we're in a beautiful Georgian house, the house of Erasmus Fry. So yes, it was a, it was a more, a quieter story, yeah. but both fantastic to film. Yeah. I mean, you know, I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's your own preparation like for those those episodes? Because you talk about, you know, filming inside ventricles of hearts and, and vortexes and things. And I mean, how do you even begin to imagine what this will look like on the set before it will even go through the computer uh, geniuses and, and create what we finally see? I mean, there's, there's so many layers of the process that when you just get the script at the start, it must be quite... Um, I would find it in my just in my head thinking about it now quite daunting to think well how how are we going to do this I mean that's the delicious joy of this job I mean that's what I love about it it's because so I mean you know you read the script and you start thinking okay what is the essence of this what's the power dynamic you know what are the kind of key beats that I want to to hit with this to express this part of the story properly or beautifully so that's what you think about first then you start to do layers of work in terms of you know I'll talk to the, the designer and he'll start saying okay here's a model this is what I'm thinking and I'll be like this is amazing I love this you know do you think that could be a bit higher because already I'm starting to think about the practicalities of like okay where would be my camera position so you start to think about the aesthetic and the vision but then also the practical of how you achieve what you want to achieve and that goes the same through you know goes through into costume going to hair and makeup so you start to like everyone's super talented and brilliant so they'll all come with their brilliant ideas and then I'll be like okay well they've picked up this I know this color reference what about bringing this into this and so in a way you're like a maple where you're in between all the heads of departments and you start to bring it all together and then I do a lot of storyboarding work which I really love and it's wonderful now because you can do it live you know with somebody on zoom so yeah. you sort of say well I'd love to have a shot a top shot and we come down into this and they'll draw it and you're like oh no maybe going a bit tighter and then they can completely you know zoom in and so you can really start to build that and put colors on it and then you don't need to get it signed off but it's enjoyable to go to the showrunner and, and express your images and, and discuss it as well so it's about that it's about communication and imagination and the fun of passionately bringing it all together and so you know often you go to the studio in the morning and you'll be given some funny object that you have to like sign off and say does this work or you know we looked at the heart in episode 10 that Rose Walker takes out and we wanted it to look like in the in the comic book there's this big red kind of crystal heart so yeah it's just working with everyone and using your imagination and then on the day of course it's working with the actors and I'll always suggest a choreography or an idea but I'll say look it's completely up to you and then to, you know together we work something out so it's just layers and layers but it's not daunting it's fun it's really fun was there a challenge on a show like this is it the scale is it you know I guess the the keys the preparation is it anything so any surprises for you no no surprises I mean the thing is you know every day filming is is fun and and exciting and of course you know you've got a lot to do in the time and you've got a lot of um I don't really ever feel pressured because I just enjoy what I do and it's you know it's all good but you know you're aware of that there's a lot of you know a lot of people a lot of money a lot of expectation but that's just that's just the job and that's what I I love yeah no challenges because you know you do you prep it all beforehand and you know what you're doing yeah. and then on the day you have to have fun because if you don't have fun and you don't have a happy set then you know what's the point though so that's one of my big things is just to make everybody feel <clears throat> collectively on point and, and part of the 
the process. So we're all going for the same vision. And that means that everybody is investing. Everyone gives as much as they can. So that's my job to sort of inspire the whole crew. You know, there's a lot of people there. You know, it's a, it's a big old shoot. And so you want everyone, every single person there to be invested. When, when you kind of started out in your directing career, was this uh, a point that you wanted to hit, this epic fantasy show? Because you've done, you know, you mentioned Chi and Flesh and Blood, very much sort of family, domestic kind of dramas with a, an edge, certainly in Cheat, for example. Was, was this sort of a goal that you had or do you have an interest in, in fantasy after The Witcher and, and now this? Or where where are we on, on your path, do you think? Well, I mean, the path has been really lovely. So <clears throat> before I did all that, I came from documentaries. I was in the BBC for 10 years and I'm making arts documentaries, which I absolutely loved. And that gave me the discipline to write my own scripts and to tell stories about you know, Houdini or Wilfred Owen and war poetry or about Ian Fleming. Um, I made a film with Bjork. So all these wonderful um, shows where you basically have to do all the jobs of all the different heads of departments and it gives you a real insight into that. So documentaries was my jumping off point and then drama's been my current passion and I love it to bit. And uh, yes, it's great doing limited series and I'd love to do more of my own, maybe even writing my own now, which I'm developing at the moment. And then doing the fantasy big shows, they're just so intoxicating and irresistible and I have a very surreal and strange uh, imagination so it really appeals to me and it appeals to me to have that fun you know so you know like on The Witcher you know you can decide to make the whole ground is going to break and you're going to fall down into it and you think okay well how are we going to do that and then you're working with people and you're getting bits of soil and I mean it's just so bonkers and brilliant and the scale is so exciting so yeah they're completely irresistible so The Witcher was a fantastic show to make and then Sandman similarly yeah I mean what I want to do next really is to start show running and writing my own ideas which I've got lots of and to yeah so to push on making fantastic shows for people have you got an, another project lined up or what's sort of next for you after Sandman or, or have you done something in the in the interim yeah so after Sandman I had the very very delight pleasure of um, working with Steve Pemberton and Reece Shearsmith on Inside Number 9 and I've just done two episodes for the last series Mr King and Wise Owl completely different to these big shows obviously so you know Witcher and Sandman are very big budget very big canvases to do deliciously so and then um, Inside Number 9 we had like four days to basically shoot an episode and I think on one of them the COVID the grip went down and we had to move the camera around ourselves so it's almost like you know really really like the other end of the extreme but completely utterly fantastic I adored making them obviously they're incredible writers and actors Steve and Reese. and again it fits with my strange and dark and twisted surreal imagination that it was really a pleasure and I love their work so much because it's so so well written so dark but also you can really have very strong framing and composition you know nothing is too much it can be super stylized and that really appeals to me so I just did that and then I've just been a lead director on a show called Treason which is a new thriller for Netflix that Matt Sharman who uh, wrote Bridge of Spies so I've just been doing that and I've got something quite big coming up but I'm not allowed to say yet apparently so um, watch this space I was just interested you know coming from documentary and an arts background into drama and how have you seen the role of particularly in drama the director changing as there's so much tv now and and so much of it has to stand out even before you start watching it even you know from the trailer almost or the first look images i mean how how important do you think that directoral vision or or style is to a show now that there are so many different shows to watch yeah i mean it's a wonderful time i mean it's a real golden era for you know directing in film but also particularly obviously now in tv with streaming um there's so many opportunities so many fantastic new ideas uh it's wonderful i mean anything i miss really from documentaries is that you know you're meeting the real people
people and there's lots of travel. Um, I also miss, you know, having more input in the script, but that's why now, and that's the direction I want to take more, is mm-hmm. developing um, my own ideas and, you know, formulating them and, and creating that my own new vision and making things which are really stand out and, and unique. So that's um, an exciting prospect as I go forward. Yeah. Do you find directors uh, are kind of maybe yourself or, or others you speak to are, are getting involved earlier in the script phase and being, you know, not just the, the director who comes in once the scripts are written, you know, that you're getting more of a say in that creative process? Yeah, that, I mean, that's the that's the nirvana, definitely. I mean, absolutely. They, they'll get more out of the director the more they bring a director on early. And that's the real pleasure is doing that development early on, um, building up the idea, the star, the vision, you know, how's it going to look? What's the what's the colour palette going to be? You know, start to really create that and actually have input on on script and story as well, because obviously we're, we're storytellers and I've been doing this for such a long time that it's frustrating if you haven't got a say in that because you can see how you can maybe add a scene or take a scene away that could actually make the story even more poignant or, or incisive. So yes, absolutely. You know, the director's got a big role. The earlier they're on, the better. Media Pro Studios is part of a wave of Spanish companies racing to capitalise on new opportunities in the marketplace as existing buyers expand their focus on Spanish language content and new commissioners like VIX Plus burst onto the scene. In Latin America alone, Media Pro currently has around 20 projects in various stages of production and development, including Yoshi, The Regretful Spy, which premiered earlier this year on Amazon Prime Plus. Its US slate includes Is There No Place on Earth for Me, written and directed by John Turturro and based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning Susan Sheehan novel. Espaleta spoke to Jordan Pinto about the growing appetite for Spanish-language programming, analysing opportunities in the AVOD and fast market, and expanding its presence in English-language content production. Yeah, so Marta, it, it seems that um, a lot of Spain-based companies are really doubling down on some of their business efforts in the US and internationally. And of course, MediaPro uh, or the MediaPro Studio, I should say, is, is no exception. Could you talk a bit about how MediaPro Studio is expanding in the US market and how its uh, US strategy is evolving? Yes, definitely. So as, as, uh, as you know, the MediaPro Studio is an international company with offices around the world including three offices in the U.S. We're based in Miami, New York, and in Los Angeles through the Wellship company that we're part of it, uh, led by Eric Barmack. And in Latin America, we're present in Colombia, in Argentina, in Mexico, and in Uruguay, and in the U.K., and Portugal, and of course, all over the place in Spain. So um, starting with the Latin market, and then I'll, I'll move to the U.S. one, we have a very strong pipeline uh, that we have been developing and producing during the last years in Latin America with currently more than 20 productions in different phases of development. And um, just to give you a quick summary of what has happened during this this last year, we've had big successful productions and premieres such as the EOC, The Regretful Spy, which is a series created by Daniel Burman and that was premiered at the end of April this year on a worldwide basis in Amazon uh, Prime Video. And this series is working extremely well uh, since continues among the 10 first uh, titles preferred by viewers in Argentina. We presented it back in February uh, during La Berlinale, where it had amazing reviews. and, And now we're currently shooting season two. 
Other remarkable series that we have recently premiered uh, is Las Bravas, that we have produced in Mexico with uh, Ariel Winograd as showrunner and Mauricio Ogman playing the, the lead role. And it's been a great success in HBO, both in LATAM and in the US market. Another one is Primate that was led by our team at the Media Pro Studio in Colombia uh, that was performed and created by uh, Christian Tapan and it was released in Amazon uh, Latam during this uh, Q2 in 2022. Or Siempre Fui Yo, which is a series that we have produced for Disney Plus and it's, it's available on a worldwide basis. Or Cecilia, which is another series created by uh, Daniel Burman for Paramount Plus that has already confirmed, well, that we're currently shooting the second season in Mexico. Uh, in the U.S. market, we have several developments ongoing that we hope that we can confirm uh, in the next months. Being one of them, one of the most advanced is the series that is called Is There No Place on Earth for, for Me? That is a six-episode fiction created, written and directed by John Turturro and is based in the novel published by Susan Sheenan and, and winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Nonfiction back in 1983. And currently, we have in production, led as well by our U.S. team, two series for Vicks, which are the Las Tenizas de la Gloria and Las Pelotaris. That is currently, it was um, Las Pelotaris star, uh, started uh, shooting some months ago in, in Mexico and is, is now in, in Spain. Besides this, what else we have in the US? As, as I mentioned before, Wildship, we have a strategic alliance to create content with the producer Eric Barmack and his company that we're part of, Wildship, and he's constantly looking for new projects and ideas. For example, during the last year, he has produced with Top Dead Center Films and our colleagues at the Media Pro Studio US office, the film Hunting Ava Bravo, which is a survival thriller shot in, shot in Utah with Kate Del Castillo as main uh, lead. And it was directed by Gary Auerbach. And uh, we have plans to develop more projects of, of this kind. Uh, another project that we have in English that could be a perfect fit for the US market and we, that we have been presenting during the last uh, television markets and co-production markets are um, 58 Seconds, which is our, one of our first projects UK-based, let's say. And the uh, second season of The Head, which is currently being shot in, in Madrid. Wow. Okay. There's uh, plenty to be, <laughs> you have plenty, <laughs> yeah. plenty of shows on, on the go at the moment. Maybe I'll just pick up on the, on the last thing you said first. Are you looking at doing more English language series or uh, as part of um, it growing in the US and the UK? Are you looking maybe at, um, you know, in incorporating more English language elements into some of the uh, Spanish language series? Definitely. So, so we're all we're always looking for good stories, and obviously, uh, as a part of as part of the strategy of our expansion, the Anglo market is is one of our key priorities, both in the in the US and in the UK. How how recently have you put this focus on on the US market? Like it, it, you know, it sounds like you, you've certainly been involved to to a large degree in the American market for a number of years. But yeah, is it possible to talk about you know recently? You know how how you might have. 
expanded that appetite and also maybe some of the market conditions that you're responding to, which I think we're seeing a lot of new buyers, companies like VIX Plus. So what what, what kind of opportunities are you seeing and, and, and how have you been expanding? Well, I believe and uh, I, I know that this company has been exploring and has been putting all the seats in the in the US market during many years. And now what, what is currently happening is that we're seeing those results of things that have started uh, some years ago. And uh, but it's true that our presence, uh, our our expansion to that market is like a natural thing, uh, since the company is growing more and more in in different territories, and is a result, as you're saying, of the new companies and new partners and clients that we're having in those markets, such as the strategic partnership that we announced some years, some months ago, with VIX, which is the new streamer uh, that uh, operates in in that market in, in the Latin market as well and for which we're producing and we're uh, developing several uh, shows and other approaches that we have been having during the last uh, I would say three years two years of clients that are uh, seeing us as a great partner to create and develop these ideas and this project and to produce them with us so it's a result of hard work during developed during many years the result of the new players in the market and the great appetite for our uh, showrunners, our creators, and the stories and, and projects that we can bring on the table. And Marta, can I ask a bit about your role specifically? So, so you're the director of international offices and distribution. Um, yeah, can you talk about a bit about how maybe you connect the dots between some of the different offices and, and how your role works within the the larger Media Pro Studios company? Yeah, I I, I lead this the international uh, part of the studio, which which means these uh, international offices and the distribution side with with the co-productions and acquisition side as well and the the well with uh, an incredible team <laughs> around the world and my role is coordinating all the activities and things that are happening and looking for new opportunities and being that um, let's say that glue that gets all the parts together and coordinates all the things that they are developing and that they are negotiating and bringing opportunities that sometimes start in one country and end up being produced in another one and having all my ears open to tell them what I'm hearing from other countries. So it is, um, I would say that it's a role that has to not only push for the growth of the company, but also to make possible all the synergies that we have in our hands, not only with regards, well, the business opportunities, but also the creative ideas and the different uh, projects that we see from one country to another. And that includes everything from the scripted side to, to the non-scripted, the movie side. So I work with all the different heads of these areas, the theatrical side, the non-scripted, the content side, in order to help them to make things happen. Um, but of course, expanding into new markets is never an easy thing, um, especially when thinking about you know, the United States, which is obviously you know the, the biggest uh, or probably the biggest uh, you know TV market in the world. 
What are some of the challenges or maybe some of the roadblocks that you might have encountered as you look to um, grow in, in the United States? I, I would say that maybe this sounds uh, like a, very, uh, a stereotype, but uh, we, we see every challenge as an opportunity. <laughs> and for us, I would say that is the, that not only for us, I, I believe that this is for everyone, which is the amount of content and people doing the same <laughs> at the same time in the same places. So our challenge, which is an opportunity for us, is to keep being the best ones in terms of the content that we offer, how we structure the whole thing to make it happen, how we produce it, how we deliver, and how we build relationships that last for a long time. So that puts us in a situation of being better and better every day. So that's why I see this challenge and opportunity that to differentiate ourselves from others that are amazing content creators as well and amazing companies that are doing content around the world, I would say that puts us in a situation of of having to uh, think every day how we can be better. Obviously, there, there, there are, there's a bigger appetite for Spanish language content um, with the buyers. Um, are you also seeing that the competition for, for you guys from, from the selling side is also increasing? Like, are you seeing a lot more companies, you know, competing to to get these green lights and these commissions well yes i i think i i think that it's a good moment for all of us for all the uh, content providers that we produce uh, uh not only well in our case we don't produce only spanish uh, uh, content in spanish we produce content since we are an international company in very different languages so we have a finnish show or a, well english shows for sure uh, spanish uh, castilian uh, spanish shows catalan shows so uh, we have content in different languages. It is true that there are more and more companies selling Castilian or Spanish content, but I think that there's place for everyone to put all the contents in, in the different outlets. Outside of the US and Latin America, are there any other new markets or new offices um, that you're looking to expand into? Well, for us, it's always we're looking always to, to keep growing. And uh, since our uh, company is present in different and in many territories, as, as I mentioned before, I we always look the ways to increase the presence of the Media Pro Studio projects in countries where uh, we still have to, to have like uh, projects in there. I would say that there's uh, room for, for improvement definitely uh, across Europe in several countries such as Italy or, or I don't know, Germany or the UK, uh, also in the Asian market and in Australia, in Canada. So there are a lot of uh, space and, and room to grow. When Media Pro is, is putting projects together, do you look primarily at co-production strategies or can Media Pro basically handle handle everything uh, within the various parts of its business? That is exactly what we what we do. We don't have we, we're looking for any single opportunity since we evaluate any single opportunity or project the way that it has to be. So we have models where we co-produce, we have models with where we are the producers. There are other models where we partner with different uh, companies uh, in order to make the project happen. So it is not one just one way for us. It's very wide, the different types of business models and, and, and 
approaches that we get to all the all the content around the world. Of, of course, um, there there are obviously lots of new buyers, but we're also seeing a lot of consolidation um, in the marketplace. Just very broadly, Televisa and Univision's um, merger. We now and more recently we have um, Discovery and Warner Media as well. I think when I speak to English language companies, you know, you, you certainly hear that there is some un- uncertainty about the the impact of the consolidation um, on the Spanish language side. Do you see uncertainty with some of the consolidation or do you think do things feel like they're more on a slightly more steady footing? I think that in this business or in this moment in general, nothing is forever and every day is different from the previous one. So I, my, my answer would be there's nothing certain. <laughs> so what we see is a permanent change and we have to embrace that change and be able to act quickly and uh, and to adapt ourselves to this change environment that it is a completely different world. Uh, I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but definitely on a quarter basis. So the amount, as you're saying, of mergers, and I think that is impacting every country, every language, every company. So I believe that is the, the, not necessarily the Spanish content is, let's say, out of this wave. Has it been exciting over the past maybe three or four years to see the increase in the demand for Spanish language content. Obviously, you you have been in this space for a long time, and you know you have always known that Spanish content or Spanish language content could could reach audiences, you know, in every part of the world. But I think maybe the rest of the world is starting to catch up to that fact re- more recently. So yeah, how how exciting has it been to see the market shift? It's very exciting, and it's not only the Spanish content; it's all the content coming from all the parts of the world and that's why we're not only focusing in that in, the, in this uh, Spanish content it's like we we operate in all the languages and but definitely it's been amazing this change of the ability of or, or the yeah the ability of co- for consumers to get content from all, o- all over the world so the appearance of the streamers obviously has helped to that for instance one of the good things that we have is one of the executive in the industry that was pioneer to open the door of this international content was our partner Eric Barmack when he was vice president of international content in Netflix. So this is without any doubt uh, a point of, uh, I would say, inflection in the way of distributing, producing and, and consuming the TV content. I think we're, we're seeing international producers being very interested in Spanish language scripted formats at the moment and looking, you know, maybe to adapt Spanish language stories into, into other languages. Have you seen that trend? and are you getting a lot of interest? Yeah, well, but this is not something recent, I have to say. Uh, the Media Pro Studio, one of the production companies that is part of it is Globo Media that uh, has produced during many, many years the top franchises uh, that were huge successes within the Spanish market and the international market. So uh, shows like Los Serrano or The Boarding School or The Boat or uh, Medico de Familia, those shows have been during many years adapted in several countries. So this is something that in this company, in this house, we are used to that. It is true that is uh, something that at that time was, I would say, pretty unique for some specific properties. And we were very fortunate to be the ones having those. And now the opportunity is is more open to several properties and production companies and, 
and there are a lot of opportunities. And yes, we're getting conversations. The distribution team is having permanently conversations with different partners and clients that show interest for our formats. The historic ones, our evergreens and the new ones. Speaking of, of growing markets, um, AVOD and Fast Channels are you know growing extremely quickly and that market is evolving very quickly, especially in the US and Latin America. Can you talk a bit about the, the opportunity and the revenue generating opportunity that the Media Pro Studio sees in the AVOD market in Latin America and the US? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, as you're saying, this is a reality. So the all these new models of, of consumption are, are opening these new models of, of li well, licensing content to third parties. And as you're saying, we see this as more implemented in both the US and Latin American market. So in this moment, not in this moment, during the last, uh, I would say, 12 months, we, we're in the process of analyzing and, and uh, all those opportunities to seek the best interest for, for both parties, not only the, the final client or the final partner, but also all the participants of the of the properties that we represent. So I would say that, yes, we're analyzing the scope of it and how could be our, our contribution to that. Said this, uh, one of the things that we keep saying every time that uh, we, we, we're a company that uh, we work with all the players and partners around the world, not only the streamers or these new uh, places of where to consume content, but also the traditional linear and free-to-air and pay TV channels, the traditional platforms that operate in several countries. So we have diversified our businesses throughout all these ways of consuming content. And definitely these fast channels and this ABOT new business model will be uh, at some point in our roadmap. For, for English language content, we're seeing some of the AVOD services start to commission originals. Um, you know, Roku and Tubi are doing some originals, as is Amazon's Freebie. Um, on the Spanish language side, has that has that evolution started yet? And are any of the AVODs commissioning originals? Or do you think maybe that's a little bit further down the road? Because I'm just trying to think if, if I've seen any Spanish language AVOD original project yet. As yeah. far as I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like you. I, I believe that as far as I, I know, I don't really call any new uh, commission or an original for a Spanish language um, ABOT service, but it will arrive at some point, which is something that we will definitely evaluate it. And um, we have licensed to Roku, for instance, in the US, this movie that I mentioned before, Hunting a Bravo, and that was premiered, but what was not produced uh, originally for them. But yeah, we, we work with these clients, but we have to keep analyzing how this whole thing works and which are the benefits and the opportunities in there in that space um, and Marta as we look to the rest of the year what are some of your goals or strategic objectives keep growing and hopefully we will be able to announce new productions in the coming months we're uh, getting into this uh, last quarter attending and being part of all these different um, content events that happen around the world which are MIPCOM MIP Cancun Content London Thank <laughs> you. 
we will be all of the teams in the dif- from different parts of the world will be there and we hopefully close and get to announce these new productions that we have now currently in our development pipeline and um, yeah that's our main goal so I would just add that um, what we were mentioning uh, before uh, that is um, the moment that we're living is a, an extremely very good moment, despite of all the challenges and all the mergers and all the things that are happening for the creators and producers of content. There's a lot of things to do and there are a lot of opportunities. And at the Media Pro Studio, the ability that we have of offering and getting this 360 chain of value of creating, producing, creating, developing, producing and distributing the content in-house is definitely a different value that we, we have to offer to the markets. A new streaming service celebrating Muslim identities and cultures is busy stocking up on content from international distributors ahead of its launch in October. Callbox comes from Singapore-based Bits Media and has been snapping up programming recently from the likes of UK-based Espresso, Authentic in Germany and Lucky You in France. Co-Chief Executive Nick Emir Din spoke to Nico Franks about the development of the new streamer, the kinds of shows it's continuing to acquire and its plans to invest in original content. So Bits Media actually is a, uh, is a company that develops and publishes the Muslim Pro app. Um, Muslim Pro is the world's uh, number one leading Muslim app. We have uh, over 130 million downloads, and I think the app is in almost every single region, whether it be North America, uh, Europe, uh, Asia, Pac. Uh, you know, we have users from all around the world. And, and more recently, um, we've developed, we've really made a big push into the content space and into the video content space with the launch of our upcoming uh, SVOD service, which is Callbox. Great. So tell me a bit about that process and where you are at the moment. So initially, when we started, we, we pretty much focused on the core uh, religious utility information. So this was pretty much assisting, uh, you know, our global Muslim users in the practice of their faith, you know, daily. So we had tools that helped them, you know, to find their prayer times, uh, uh, you know, to, to find a direction to prayer, to find locate halal uh, restaurants and, and all of these utility tools. But what we realized from our users is that, you know, utility, utility tools was a good starting point, but the religion, Islam is more than, you know, it's more than just the prayer. It's more of a way of life and a lifestyle for them. So that's when we realized that content um, was a very important part that we needed to expand. Um, you know, within our app. So initially we did this uh, with short written, uh, short form content. So we started off by publishing articles, you know, um, uh, we have inspirational stories, we added uh, infographics, basically just short articles about, you know, exploring the different areas of um, lifestyle for, for, for the Muslim audience, right? Uh, and and that was very encouraging for us when we saw that users were very much attracted to this content. And in fact, they were demanding more. And, and as we saw, uh, not only within our space, but I think more widely in general, is that uh, this is also where there was an increasing adoption in video content. You know, you've seen um, how, uh, you know, the social media video platforms have taken off, whether it's TikTok, whether it's YouTube, Instagram. And that's the same with us. You know, the Muslim audience very much behaves like any other um, audience. And, and they also were very much um, looking for high quality video content. So I guess that was the natural sign for us to then expand into video content. Um, and that's where we we, we we really spend a lot of time brainstorming the idea of creating uh, an S-Port service where we were able to uh, provide video content 
tailored specifically curated and tailored specifically for the Muslim audience. You know, so this is more about you know I, I you know we do have um, content that is is out there that may have you know um, you know uh, a Muslim character or whatnot, but we realize that this is severely lacking that idea of you know Muslim identity, Muslim representation on on video, on the film screen. Um, that's something that we really believe in, and that's something that we're trying to achieve with our new service as well. And obviously, there's a huge amount of diversity within that segment of a Muslim audience. So within that, who are you targeting? Kind of age groups and and regions. Yeah, so that's a very good point. I think the first thing that we like to highlight is that you know the whole um, Muslim uh, global community is is not a homogenous block, right? So even within that, you've got such a diverse, um, um, you know, you know, such diversity. You know, just to give you an example, you know, the how the Muslim population in Southeast Asia, you know, led by Malaysian Indonesia, is totally different than you know uh, Muslims living in Europe or in 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 the US, right? So one thing that we we've tried to do is we definitely tried to to make sure that the content that we go uh, that we acquire and we have on this platform is actually catering to all these different segments right so we do have content that we've acquired you know from uh, uh, I guess the Muslim community that grew up in Western countries like US like France and and UK which are uh, a very big portion of our user base but then we also try to diversify this by having other kind of content that is probably more relevant or um, you know more targeted towards our users from the Southeast Asia or Muslim majority countries like Malaysia and Indonesia. Now, I think that answers in terms of geographically. Um, but when we talk about our age um, age group again, um, you know, uh, we go back to our user base because the the good good thing about Muslim Pro is we've been around for over ten years, so we we have a very healthy user base and we know what our users um, you know like and and what their background is. And generally, what we find is that you know these are the the main consumer market. So these are users you know uh, between the ages of eighteen uh, up to forty five. You know, they're working families or or young you know young parents, and they definitely you know uh, on the lookout for lifestyle content. You know, whether it's travel, whether it's food, um, you know, uh, children's entertainment, you know, um, basically just learning about culture and exploring the world. So this is kind of the rough focus that, that we're trying to achieve with Callbox as well. And tell me a bit about some of the content you've acquired so far and the reasons behind those acquisitions. Yeah, so I think, uh, again, I go back to my point, I think there's kind of twofold what we're trying to do. The first thing is really about, um, you know, Muslim representation identity. So what we've really tried to do and 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 when we talk to the content distributors is that, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is everyone may, they, you know, they may not even realize it, but they have content that's very relevant for our audience, right? Because I'll give you an example, right? When we, we've acquired a lot of uh, documentaries on Islamic countries. So this is not necessarily a Muslim production or Islamic production, but you know, they have been shot in some of the most amazing locations, which, you know, um, naturally are just, you know, just happen to be part of the, um, you know, uh, the Muslim identity or Muslim culture, right? So, for example, um, one of the interesting documentaries that we acquired, um, you know, was, uh, uh, um, for example, a documentary about Tehran and, and you know, Iran. So this was highlighting the, the beautiful landscape, um, you know, the um, architecturally um, talking about Iran's culture. So this is an example of, of, of you know, content that we've acquired. Uh, beyond that, we've also tried to make sure that um, not only having this Muslim representation and his identity, we also have a wide range of uh, different genres that speaks to, to our audience, right? So that's where we've also acquired, you know, series, scripted series like Little Moss on the Prairie, which is a very, uh, very famous show in, in Canada um, that, that is still 
not that widely um, known outside of Canada. So what we're trying to do is promote that and, and kind of give that visibility to that. And then we also have, as I mentioned, documentaries. But even beyond that, we are also looking at, you know, children's entertainment. Where we're looking at, um, you know, food shows. So there's so much opportunity and, and we definitely welcome you know, any any distributors to reach out to us and, and have a chat because like I said, the Muslim audience um you know is 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 so diverse that there's there's plenty of opportunities to to find the right content to to show showcase to them as well. And on the children's entertainment side, you know, like huge parts of the industry, but I think children's has maybe kind of been at the forefront of inclusive and diverse programming in a lot of ways. Um and animation, you know, has it's obviously it's sometimes in animation it's not humans, is it? It's anthropology morphic animals and things like that mm. so is there a, a big scope for you to acquire programming from around the world in terms of animated content i definitely think so um i mean obviously you know for 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 us um you know when we talk about children's entertainment and, and animation um there's definitely different levels um to it uh, when we talk about it and i think we're still at the very early stages if i talk about Muslim inspired or Muslim friendly children's entertainment, right? I think the first, um, you know, the first focus point or the first uh, area that we would like to see is just to have more, just more representation of, of, of the global, you know, Muslim children or, or characters or even storylines that, that the Muslim children can look up to, right? So we're starting to see this. I mean, I mean, I'm pretty sure you've heard of, uh, you know, Miss Marvel, which is the latest uh, creation by Disney. And that's a very good example. It's not really creating something new um, per se in terms of, you know, the, the recipe, but more of just highlighting a different, you know, um, a highlighting, highlighting a different element in terms of portraying a character that that is very authentic, um, you know, and speaks to the Muslim audience. So we're definitely trying to do that. Um, and, and just to give you a little bit of um, information, for example, one of the shows that we recently took on, uh, Burka Avenger, does this, right? We've just acquired. So this is, you know, a, an animation series, um, you know, um, that's, that's, that's pretty much, you know, very much Follow, uh, talking about the, along the superhero lines, but just um, personalizing the experience and kind of giving that authentic feel of what would it be like in a Muslim, you know, Muslim context. So, so I hope that gives you a little bit of an idea um, in terms of the uh, the children's entertainment that, that we're looking at. Yeah, I've interviewed the creator of that show, Haroon, uh, a few times. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, he's a really interesting guy, and that's a really interesting show. Um, what in terms of exclusivity of the programming that you're acquiring at the moment? Do you does it need to be exclusive can it also be on air on tv channels because i there isn't a tv you know broadcasting element to, to to what you're doing is there yeah so obviously i mean you know this is where you know wherever possible of, of course if, if it's you know we're going to be looking at it selectively um or opportunistically um wherever we can have um exclusive content then that that would be great but i think at the start what we are really finding is that especially for us when we have a global audience what we realize that that creates an additional challenge right i mean obviously if we're looking to um launch you know one or two countries then it may be a lot easier to try and, and have that exclusivity, as you said. But what we're really focusing on during this launch period um, is, is pretty much having as much content available and making it as widely available. So just to give you an idea, for example, our top five markets, um, you know, I touched on this was US, uh, UK, France, and then Malaysia and Indonesia. So this is all around, around the world, right? So trying to, to negotiate an exclusive uh, arrangement for, for all these five countries may not be so easy at the start. Um, but what we are really focused on instead is to, to make sure that we have the widest range of content available the content is relevant for each segment once we have a better understanding of what works you know for example what our indonesian user base wants or what our users in in the us um you know um like 
then that's, I think then it makes more sense for us to kind of explore, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Let's kind of uh, go deeper into this. Let's let's have an exclusive arrangement or, or even let's look at original production selectively, right? Yeah. And how about language requirements? What do you need in terms of those? Yeah. So obviously, um, I think this is something that, again, when I, I keep going back to the diversity, you know, in our, in our user base, and, and that's the truthful part, right? If we really want to be the global uh, platform for for the Muslim community, then we'll have to at some point cater to all the major languages that the, the Muslim population is from. So obviously English is a must and that's what we started off with. So the majority of our shows are either based in English or at the very least, even if we have non-English titles, we would make sure that we have it uh, in English subtitle, right? But then the next phase is then to focus on our other major languages that our users come from. So this would be French, uh, Bahasa Indonesia, Bahasa Malaysia, Arabic. Um, and, and from there, you know, it, it just the, the opportunities would then also increase to add on all the other uh, complementary languages as well. So the scripted content that you're acquiring, obviously, when we're talking about a TV schedule, you can get a sense of what a drama is going to be like by the time of day or evening that it airs. So if it's at seven o'clock, you know, it's going to be fairly not a lot of swearing, things like that. But that later on, you know, it, it, that might creep in. In terms of the kinds of drama that you're looking to acquire, you know, if it were on TV, what kind of day, time of day would it be going out? You know, what are you looking for in terms of the kind of tone of drama? And, you know, because... For example, crime is such a, uh, a a popular genre at the moment. How you know, in terms of things like violence, nudity, things like that, what 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 can you and can't you do? Yeah, so I think there's there's two parts to it. I think the the, the first part is that um, you know um, you're probably asking what what kind of moderation or what kind of content do do we have and what content do we not want to have on our platform, right? So if I were to answer that question, I think we have a pretty um, you know we have a pretty clear guideline and pretty clear focus on what we do, and our content is uh, Muslim friendly. So that means that already, you know, we have a very clear guidelines of content um, of things that we want to avoid or we don't we, we don't include in our platform. So these are obviously things that are non-permissible to, to the Muslim faith, right? So obviously we talk about, um, you know, uh, nudity or, or uh, you know, extreme things like violence, you know, uh, things like that. So naturally, we're already going to be avoiding those specific um, titles or those specific content, right? Um, but beyond that, um, I think that's the, the the good thing again at the start that we are not bound by, you know, linear programming, where, as you said, we have to have that thing. And I think, you know, if I think about the the nature of SVOD services on demand, it's not about having a content that's going to be widely viewed by as many people at one time, right? It's about having enough pockets of content that's going to speak to the different segments of the audience. So again, that's where I go back from um, to that. So that's why I said we have to have documentaries on food and travel and culture because we know for a fact that a proportion of our audience likes travel and food. We know another proportion of our uh, audience would be more conservative, would probably be more leaning towards, for example, spiritual content. So we would make sure that we would have a certain portion of our library on that. And then, as you said, we also have certain, um, you know, a certain audience that are probably also looking for entertainment who like, you know, comedy, something more lighthearted. So we have to have, you know, content that addresses that. So I think that's more of our approach rather than, um, you know, number one, clearly segmenting what is not permissible and, and cutting that out, which does a lot of the job because it actually cuts out a lot of the content that, um, you know, uh, filters out a lot of the content uh, for us. And then out of those that are remaining and we realize that it's suitable for our platform, we don't look at it individually per se. I mean, of, of course, individually, it has to be of a high quality, but then also look at how it complements the other offerings that we currently have on our platform as well. And in terms of the business model, we're seeing a lot of the SVODs now exploring ad-supported elements. So how will, will you approach those two things? Yeah, so that's a good question. And I think uh, even the even the big, you know, the big guys of heaven, um, you know, really figured out 
the right strategy. But uh, even though, you know, Netflix has obviously just announced a move to add, I think for us, we're still so early. Um, you know, we're really focused on the content side. Um, the, the good thing about us at Muslim Pro is we we actually have both in our app. You know, we, we offer both a hybrid model of a premium subscription as well as a, a ad, a free basic version, right? So we understand both models well. Um, but I think when we talk about Callbox, the, the priority is offering a great seamless experience. And I think this for us at the start is going to be an ad-free experience. So that's why um, we are focusing on 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 on, on delivering it, um, the Asvod model, where it's a subscription-based offer. But as I said, we're very much early into this days. You know, we're not at a stage where we, we, we need to make those those decisions yet. Um, and instead, you know, we have the, uh, the the great the great part of our job is to focus on on getting the users, getting the content first. So, so that's what we're focused on this year. And how about making your own programming? We've seen lots of SVODs do that now, some, you know, with more success than others, and some they found it too expensive and have had to kind of either rein back on that or just completely kind of it's been the undoing of them. So what's going to be your approach? We, we already have some production in the pipeline. Um, I think we're going to be at the start. Uh, obviously, you know, when, when, when you launch, the, the thing about original programming is it takes time, right? Uh, you know, projects that you green light are only going to come to your to your service, you know, um, after a certain time, production and everything. So we are, we, we do have certain projects in the pipeline. We're excited about it. Um, and I think, you know, without, at this stage, we're probably not ready to disclose the specific um, um, productions. But what I can say is that our approach to that is we're really looking again at these, these are the, and I go back to the having the wide library. So we'll have, uh, we'll try to acquire as much content to, to have the broader segment, to have, you know, the widest library that we think is necessary to attract this global Muslim audience. However, if we do happen to identify certain gaps or certain, you know, certain areas where we feel, okay, let's say in the documentary space or in the food space, there's not something out there that we're looking for. That's kind of been the approach where we said, okay, we need to do our own. So we don't have a deliberate approach of saying we want to, you know, build blockbusters. We want to win awards. We want to, you know, have uh, X amount of, of original program. It's more of saying, is there a piece of content or is there a story or is there, you know, something that, that needs to be told, but we can't find it? You know, it's not currently out there. And can, can it be something that we having, you know, being the creators of Muslim Pro, understanding our Muslim audience, can we do a great job of, of creating that, right? You know, and, and basically telling that, again, I go back to that, telling that, showing that, showcasing that Muslim representation, telling that story, but using Callbox as that entertainment, as a platform and, and, and you know, to, to, um, to tell that story. And so is it more likely that original programming push will begin with unscripted rather than scripted content? Yes. I mean, it's always, it's, you know, in our view, um, you know, scripted is, is, is always a, a bar higher, um, you know, to, to produce. So the, the programmings we have in the pipeline are on the unscripted side, but that's not to say that we can't pursue um, not, uh, the scripted uh, productions as well should the, the opportunity arise, right? And take me through the timeline in terms of the UK, the US, the, and the European launches elsewhere for the SVOD. Yeah, so that's the interesting part um, about us because unlike, you know, I guess when 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 you, you think about SVOD or when you think about launches, people are kind of launching it on a country-by-country -country basis. But the unique thing about Muslim Pro is we already have users in over 190 countries, right? And, you know, for example, our, our top five markets, we have tens of millions of users already. So our approach uh, goes back to that strategy where because we've launched um, you know, English content or English strategy, um, it allows us to target multiple countries at once. So that's what we're doing. Um, so essentially, we're going after our top five markets. Obviously, at some point, there does need to be some localization. And, and you touched on it, whether it's languages, whether it's in terms of having specific content that's only relevant or more relevant for a particular country, that will come secondary. But at the start, we very much lean 
on you know content that's very relevant for the global audience and attractive for our global audience, and that's kind of our targeting strategy. Um, given that we already have users in 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 in, in you know across all the regions. And will you be attending markets like you know big broad markets like MIPCOM later this year, or are you kind of more targeted towards kind of slightly smaller, more niche events? No, that definitely. Um, I think you know MIPCOM where we're participating. Um, you know, I think we're participating in a lot of the uh, broad categories, and it goes back to my earlier uh, point, Nico, is that you know people don't realize that you know Muslims, um, you know, very much like any other group, we you know they're interested in a whole wide range of topics, right? And and so that's what we found. So if you notice, um, you know, some of the deals that we've struck with, um, I think Espresso, you know, West Wind in 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 Canada, Authentic in Europe, they're not Muslim pro- uh, production or Muslim content distributors. It just so happens that they have a certain segment of their um, you know their portfolio that's very re- relevant for us. So I think that's going to be the same approach. We're going to be participating in these, you know, the the mainstream trade shows, the general trade shows, because at this stage, um, you know, there's there's just a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of potential for us to find great content within the general distributors, um, you know, without having to to go, you know, very much say that we're focused very specifically in terms of niche um, Muslim, you know, Muslim focus events or Muslim focus um, um, titles, right? And you're you're based in Singapore, but as the TV industry in the, in the Western world you know, changes and becomes attempts to become more inclusive and diverse. A, some of the shows popping up, like We Are Lady Parts, which is a Channel 4 show with Muslim lead characters. Um, are you kind of observing kind of how that's developing what and what's your take on it yeah definitely i mean we we can't we can't escape from that you know I, I, it goes back to my point that um you know it would be a lot easier if i were to tell you nico like okay we're focusing on malaysia and and indonesia and and you know we can pretty much um you know tailor our our platform or tailor um you know our strategy to that but the reality is muslim pro is already global um so that's something that we've had to recognize and i think at the start we are we are observing and 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 it goes back to our approach that generally we really want to focus on entertainment um and one thing that uh, i think probably i didn't mention is that we don't really offer content that's prescriptive right meaning that we're not trying to force a certain viewpoint or a certain particular ideology even within the muslim context right whether it is a viewpoint of you know muslims growing up in malaysia or muslims growing up in the us so i think that's part of our strategy and and i think um, that's ultimately that that helps us because at the end of the day, Callbox is universal, and what we really focus on is the global Muslim uh, community. And and when you talk about inclusivity, it means not favoring one group over the other. So so I think yeah, to to your point, we are observing, and we we definitely want to see what is the role that we can play um, in terms of also um, you know uh, uh, building on 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 this narrative as well. Nick Emir Din speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Tuesday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 